0: Hebrews chapter 5, find that on page 1003 in the Church Bible. I know you're going to find it helpful as we are working through a series on the book of Hebrews that we titled a while back, We See Jesus. We're looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to start back in chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, as we get the context of what we're going to look at this morning. And I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and Let's pray together and ask that he would bless the preaching of his word and that we would be changed by it, that this would not just be a meaningless rote exercise that we do every week, but that our hearts, our souls, and our minds would be renewed by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do look to you for every good and perfect gift. We're told in Your word that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the good gifts of faith and repentance, that you would give us the good (coughs) gifts of uh, belief and confidence and trust and dependence. We pray that you would make us to see more our need for the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would increase our faith We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him who is the author and finisher of our faith and to run with endurance the race set before us. Oh, God, we pray that you would have mercy on us. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he is himself beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor to himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I imagine that all of us have known someone or have been someone who has gone through some difficulty in life, some either difficulty on account of personal sin or some difficulty because of a trial in their life, who has then said, coming into that trial, I really need someone who has gone through this to help me right now, or I really don't want to talk to anyone except this person because this person understands what I'm going through. And I think that that's an experience that's common to all of us, and it's an experience that is deeply built into the fabric of who we are as image bearers, that we want others to understand the experiences that we're having as we live together. We want others to identify with us. We find the most help in those who do identify with us. We find the most help in those who have gone through the things that we're going through and are able to speak into our lives a word of comfort or encouragement or even at times rebuke. And I think that that's natural, I think it's natural for us to want it, and I think not only is it natural, but it's something that God has so ordered so that we would understand better what we have in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, as we've been looking at this uh, letter to the Hebrews, as we've been considering together what this church who was being persecuted, who had unique challenges facing them, challenges that you have never had in your life. Challenges that you could not speak to them on any level about because none of you have experienced the sense of persecution and suffering that they were experiencing, the temptations that they had to turn away from Christ and to go back to the world so as to avoid temptation, and it's in this letter that the writer is telling them that the very one they need to sympathize with them, who, who is able to sympathize with them and is able to be there to speak into their lives is the very one they're tempted to turn away from. And it's interesting that he holds out that one to them. And he says, listen, you have one who in every way can sympathize with everything that you're going through because he entered into it to the fullest degree. And that one is God and that one is man and that one is Jesus, the great high priest. And the writer of Hebrews now as he introduces a section that's going to run from chapter 4 verse 14 all the way to the end of chapter 10 to the largest section of this book the greatest exposition in all of Scripture about priesthood and what it means that you need a priest and what it means that you have a priest in Jesus, the writer is going to introduce the subject of the priesthood of Jesus by saying he has entered into the experience of suffering so that he can be a compassionate priest for you when you're suffering. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see first in this section that Um, that God's priest, the priest that is the priest that's appointed by God and able to help people, is one who is compassionate. And then secondly, we're going to see that the priest who is able to help God's people is one who has himself been chosen by God. He's uniquely qualified. You need someone who is qualified to sympathize with you and to help you and to give you victory. And the high priest was both compassionate and he was called. Notice here in chapter five that as the writer moves out of telling us that Jesus had been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin, now he goes into a theology of priesthood and he says, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, If you've ever read through the Old Testament and you come to those portions like Leviticus and you get bored in your daily reading and so you jump to Romans because that's what we do. When we get bored with Leviticus, we go to Romans because that's clear and logical and we don't know what to do with Leviticus. Well, if you want to know what to do with Leviticus and Exodus and all those difficult portions, you get this. You come to the book of Hebrews. Um, If the book of Romans, one writer said, if the book of Romans tells us what we need, The book of Hebrews tells us how we get what we need for salvation. It's the inner working. It's the nuts and the bolts of what it means to have a high priest. And so the writer takes us in, he goes back, and he now unpacks a the theology of priesthood, and, and the big thing that he tells us about the high priest who got it appointed when he had set up that intricate system in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and the temple, and all the animal sacrifices, and the priest going on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, and taking the, the sacrifice in, and shedding the blood, and putting it on the mercy seat so that God would come, and that God's presence would be reconciled to man, and that man sin was forgiven, and the priest who would stand, and he would represent you, and he would take your sin symbolically, and he would take two goats, and he would place your sin on one goat, and he would impute to the other goat the sacrificial right, and sacrifice one, and send the other away. That priest was doing for you what you needed done most, and that priest had to do it for himself, too. And notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. The first thing we're told is that he is chosen from men. The priest you need is not a divine priest. You don't need an angel. You need a man. You need a fellow man who can represent you before God. And so God ordered a priesthood and from that priesthood he he chose men who could be separated who could represent his people before him. And he chose the tribe of Levi. And he chose Aaron, and he instituted the Aaronic priesthood. And what he was doing was he was saying, you need someone like you to represent you before me. And there was nothing about Aaron that made him better. Remember, Aaron's the one making the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. The high priest is the one playing idolatrous harlotry at the foot of the mountain with Israel. He's the one that caused Israel to to worship another god when Moses was up on the mountain. But God had chosen Aaron. And God had set apart Aaron. And God had sanctified Aaron and his sons. And we see the weaknesses, don't we? We see see their own needs for sacrifice. We see Aaron's need for sacrifice. But we see that God is interested in you having a man help represent you before him. And so that no one can say, well, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the unique temptations I have. You're not married to whom I'm married to. You don't have the job I have. You don't understand what it is to have had parents that treated me like this. You don't understand. And I'll tell you, time and time again, I hear people say those things. And the Bible says, oh no, oh no. You have a man in Jesus Christ who understands. And Aaron typified him. And notice what we're told. First, we're told that the priest is appointed by God to act on behalf of men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The biggest need, and I'll say this, every worship service I can say this, the biggest need you have, because when you lay on your deathbed, what you did in life is not going to matter. Who your friends were will not matter. Your experiences will not matter. What you owned will not matter. Who you married will not matter. What your children accomplished will not matter. The only thing that's going to matter on your deathbed is, are your sins forgiven? And I promise you, when you cross over and you breathe your last, the only thing that's going to matter between you and God is, are your sins forgiven? And no one else can do that. But God appointed a priest who would offer sacrifices, and God said, I will fix your problem. I will give you a system by which you can understand my grace and your need for forgiveness. And he appointed a priest, and notice this, the priest was appointed by God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And notice this in verse 2, his compassion now emerges. He can deal gently the word literally is gently some english translations don't have that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is also beset by weakness you know i sometimes think especially in the reformed church and in in conservative churches that we understand sympathy in the realm of misery we understand what it is to be sympathetic when people have physical problems when maybe they have difficulties, someone's treating them harshly at work, they have a bad marriage, we, we can enter into that sympathetically. But when they have sin in their life, when we who take sin so seriously look at sin in others' lives, we oftentimes become most judgmental and least sympathetic. And God appointed a high priest who was himself beset by the weakness of sin to make atonement for the sins of the people. Charles Spurgeon and I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon says, "Every sinner is declared to be a fool, yet concerning this you and I may well have compassion because we're sinners too." Every sinner is declared to be a fool, and because of this, you and I can have compassion on other sinners because we're sinners too. We're foolish. We're all foolish. Aaron was foolish. The high priest Every Levitical priest in the Old Testament was a sinner who needed sacrifice for sins, and so when the people could come, and they came to him, and they confessed their sins, and they said, I've done this, I've disobeyed God, I've strayed from this, I shouldn't have done this, I need sacrifice, he could sympathize, his heart was moved with compassion because he understood the burdens of the battle. He understood that there's often failure in life. He got that we weren't always victorious. He got that we failed and God appointed him to make sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of the people. And so the priesthood was preeminently a ministry of compassion. You now I think it's sad that in our day so few people feel like they can go to a minister of the gospel with the burdens of their sin. You should be able to go to any gospel believing minister and say I have sinned, I am struggling with this sin, I am ensnared in this sin, and he should come alongside you, and as Paul says in Galatians, let you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also are tempted. But too often, I think the people in the churches feel like they can't go, they need to cover it. It's the worst thing you could do. The worst thing you can do is cover your sins. And so we needed a priest who was compassionate, who was understanding, who was himself beset by weakness. And so notice what the writer says, that in verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now, you may be thinking, as I thought for many years, okay, how does that help me? Because Aaron's not my priest, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, Jesus is my priest. And in the verses just before this, it says that Jesus had no sin. Now, there's a conundrum. We're told Aaron could help the people. He could bear with them gently when they were ignorant and going astray because he himself had sin and he needed sacrifice. But we were told right before that that our high priest, to whom Aaron was just pointing, had no sin. How does that help me to know that I need a priest who can have compassion, even not just on my misery, but in my moments of sin, and yet the high priest God has given us and who he is himself had no sin? I think the answer lies in verses 7 and following. Notice, skip down to verse 7, where the writer now says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, what the writer's done, I think, is he has asked the same question. He's asked the same question. How can a sinless one sympathize with sinners? We get that he could sympathize with us because he was tempted. We get that he felt the temptations pulling on him from outside, not from within. We get that he understood every kind of temptation, but how can he sympathize with me if he never sinned? And I think the writer is going to take us to the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was being constituted a sin bearing sacrifice are beginning in the garden when he knew the terrors and the weight of what was about to happen to him when our sin was being imputed to him. And it was so weighing on him that Jesus could say, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. And though he knew no sin, and listen very carefully, or you'll miss this, though he knew no sin, Jesus was made sin. That's the language of Paul. He was treated and constituted as if he were the worst sinner that ever lived. And all of the guilt and all of the shame of your sin was placed on Jesus Christ in the garden. And he understood that he would have to take the punishment, and it weighed down his soul. One who never knew a defiled conscience. One who never, ever, ever disobeyed his parents. One who never lusted after a woman sinfully. One who never had one wrong thought about God, one hard thought about God's ministers. One wrong, sinful, idolatrous thought for one second of his life, who had a perfectly pure conscience, never did anything wrong in the garden, was weighed down as if he had done everything wrong. Do you understand the magnitude of that? He was weighed down as if he had done everything you've done and everything every other sinner he came to die for had done. It was all placed on Jesus. And the agony and the sorrow that he experienced is precisely what enables him to sympathize with us even when we failed and we go back to him. Notice what the writer says in verse seven: "In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death." Now, I don't think he's saying that Jesus prayed that he didn't have to die. It appears as if Jesus prayed that he didn't have to die. But what Jesus is really praying, according to the writer of Hebrews, was that God would save him through death. He understood he had to drink the cup. He understood that he had to take the wrath you deserve. He understood that he had to become a sacrifice for your sin. He understood everything that he had come and he had to do and that he would have to bear it alone and that he would have to bear it in his holy soul, all of the sorrow and agony because of your rebellion and my rebellion. And yet he went through it and he prayed that God would save him through death and that's the resurrection. And that Jesus entered into the experience as closely as a perfectly holy God could do as man. He entered into the experience of suffering and the sufferings of temptation not to go forward and the weight of what it was to be constituted a sinner when he had no sin. He entered into that in the most full way possible so that you have the most sympathetic and compassionate high priest you could ever imagine. And he was victorious. And he was victorious. He didn't fail. We fail so often. You know, one old writer said, Jesus helps those that fight, not fail. I actually would qualify that. He helps those who fight and sometimes fail, but not those who fail and never fight. He doesn't help you if you're failing and living in sin. He helps those who fight, yet sometimes fail because he fought, and he was victorious, and he conquered, and he rose again, and he is the exact high priest that you need Do you think about Jesus that way? When you think about the the reigning Jesus, do you think about him as one who every time you go through some trial or challenge, every time you suffer or even when you fail, you understand that his heart is united to your heart and that his heart longs to give you grace and to help you and to come alongside you because his heart led him to sacrifice himself to be the sacrifice for your sin? It's magnificent. Not only is he better than Aaron, he's the sacrifice that Aaron's sacrifice pointed to. I want you to think about that. Not only is Jesus the priest, he's the sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews is going to unpack this. He's everything that you need. In his experience, in being able to sympathize as a priest, he was laying down his own life. He was laying it down as a sacrifice, He was pouring out his soul unto death to provide forgiveness for all of your failings. For every time that you have gone astray in ignorance, he was entering into the experience of feeling the weight and the guilt and the shame because he was laying down his life to take away the guilt and the shame. If this doesn't move you, nothing I'll ever say will. Nothing. These are the depths these are the depths. If this doesn't move you, if you've never been moved by this, you need to go home, get on your knees, and you need to say, Lord Jesus, I don't know you. I need to know you. I have never seen you sweating drops of blood for me. I have never seen you in agony of soul because of my wickedness and rebellion. I have never seen you as the compassionate high priest that you are. If you have never seen Jesus Christ in agony, crying out with tears and prayers to his father to save him through death, then you need to go home and you need to say, have mercy on my soul. I need you, Lord Jesus. And I think that what we come away with who know Jesus Christ is that we understand that no matter how much we failed, no matter how many difficulties we're weighed down with, we understand we can go back to him. Today, we can go back to him and we can say, my Jesus, I love you. I know that you're mine. I know that all of my sin was placed on you. I know that you bore everything that I've done and that the guilt that I feel in my soul because of my failings was placed on you and that you are a complete sacrifice. And not only so, I know that you were victorious so that I can become victorious too because notice, it says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is a theological problem, because the Bible says that he was always obedient, and the Bible says that he was always a son, and the Bible says that the Son of God is absolutely perfect. How did he learn obedience? He learned obedience to be your priest in the act of suffering itself. Notice what he says in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, In our house, it belongs to a son to obey. A son obeys his parents. But my sons don't learn obedience through suffering. Jesus learned to be the obedient and faithful high priest, though he never lacked obedience, in every experience that he went forward with, every challenge, as a man, Entering into that full experience of humanity, he, uh, he learned to go forward. He learned to trust his father. He learned to do what his father wanted him. When he was in the garden and Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, he was saying, your will trumps my will. I will learn to trust you and obey you, even if it seems hard and difficult. And even though I don't want the broken fellowship with you, Father, I will learn to obey you through the sufferings. And that means that even when we're tempted and we say, I don't know how I can obey without losing my job. I don't know how I can obey without losing my ministry. I don't know how I can obey and not drive my child away from me because I will obey God and not compromise. Then at those moments, at those moments, that's when we look at Jesus and we say, the Lord Jesus Christ did it. And he's there to help me do it. And so my life doesn't have to be a life of failure. You know, we talk a lot about the reality of indwelling sin. I think rightly so. I don't think that we think or talk enough about the fact that we are called to obey and that your life should not be marked by failure. I want to ask you, as you examine your life, as you think about where you are spiritually, is your life more marked by failure than victory? Are you in the habit of just accepting failure? You don't have to. God commands you not to. And you have a source of strength who himself learned to obey through the most difficult and challenging sufferings, so that you could learn to obey when you don't feel like it. If I can say this, and I'm going to say this as reverently as I can, in the garden, Jesus didn't feel like drinking the cup and losing fellowship with his father as he took the wrath that you deserve. He didn't feel like it. It was a wholly perfect not feeling like it. But he didn't feel like it, but he did it anyway. He drew strength from his father. His father sent angels to help, though I'm sure those angels weren't much help because that was a very temporary thing. But he endured and he went forward and he drank the cup. And you know what? We too, now because we have a priest who identifies with us, who knows everything about you, He knows all about your experiences. He knows all about your marriages. He knows all about your inner thoughts. He knows all about your desires, all about your failures, all about where you'd like to grow. He knows everything. And he says, I have done it for you. I have gone before you. I have obeyed for you. I am here to help you. And notice this. Notice in verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Sometimes in the Reformed Church we shy away because we believe in justification by faith alone and we know that it's faith by which we live, but you're called to obey him. You are called to obey your Savior. You were redeemed to obey, not to disobey him. You were redeemed to be an obedient child who obeys the words and the commands of the Lord Jesus who bought you and redeemed you. And he becomes for us the author of our salvation. If you you are interested in obeying Jesus, you can be confident that Jesus has redeemed you and that he has finished everything for you and that he has secured salvation for you. Now, let me say this secondly. Secondly, Jesus is chosen by God. It's conceivable that Jesus was an imposter. I don't know if you've ever been in an experience where you're going through a difficult time in life. I've actually had this happen to me. And someone who doesn't really know you and knows nothing about your situation and is 60 people and friends removed from you tries to speak into your life. And you just want to say, who are you? And why are you talking to me? And that's OK. That's, that's a right response. There, there are people that are not called and qualified to speak into your life. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is what you need is not only a compassionate person, you need a chosen, called, God-appointed person to speak into your life. And that that person has to have God's stamp of approval on him to help you, and that's precisely who Jesus is. Aaron was called by God. You guys remember the story of the uh, Aaron's rod? Maybe not. Aaron had a rod. Some other guys didn't like Aaron. They didn't think it was right that he got to be the priest. They complained. God said, put all your rods out in the one that blossoms. That's my priest. That's the one I've chosen. Aaron's rod budded. Rods don't bud. Rods are dead wood. His, it, it blossomed because God had chosen him. That's a picture of that God has chosen Jesus Christ. Notice what the writer says. He says, No man takes this office to himself, but only he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. He didn't say... I'll do whatever I want to do. He said, yes, my father, I will be the priest. I will be the priest they need. I will be the everlasting priest. I will be the suffering priest. I will be the obedient priest. I will be the the person that they need because you have called me to be that. And he fulfilled and executed that office perfectly because he was called by God. He knew as he faced the challenges that he was faced with in the work of redemption that his father had chosen him. Isaiah 42.1, my elect one, Jesus, to be the redeemer of mankind, and that that carried him through. That carried him through. What enabled him to drink the cup in the garden and the cup on the cross was the fact that God chose him. Now, there are many men in pulpits who are not called by God, and they do great harm to the church. It grieves my heart that that's not more widely recognized, Yesterday, I I met a girl who, as we got talking in some way, in some sense, we got talking about ministers of the gospel, and she said, oh, I'd never speak ill of a minister. Well, there are some ministers who are not called by God who it would be right to be spoken ill of. It would be right for them to be spoken ill of because they're imposters. Jesus is no imposter. You have the perfect high priest. Now, here's the challenge. I'm going to leave us with this as we close. Here's the challenge. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. And so if you're an old covenant Jew and here's a guy from the tribe of Judah, you're going to say he's an imposter. You're going to say, how can he be the high priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi. The writer's going to unpack that, but what he's going to tell us, notice in verse six, notice this. The father says to the son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is all I'm going to say about this this morning. That's from Psalm 110, prophesying about the Messiah's priesthood. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14. He just shows up in a book of genealogies where everybody has a father and mother and a genealogy. He has no beginning, no father and mother, no genealogy, and he disappears. And this is, long before Aaron and the priesthood in Israel. This is the first priest in the Bible. And he shows up and he disappears. And Jesus has no beginning of days and no end of life. He's an eternal priest. And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say is that God had appointed Melchizedek, this mysterious priest, to be a picture of the one whose priesthood trumped all priesthoods. And so that you have the best priest called by God, who will never be replaced, who will never die, who will live forever, who always lives forever for you. You have the best priest. He lives forever and ever and ever. The writer will say he has the power of an endless life. Your priest has the power of an endless life. Now, what do we do with that? I think that we all need to get a lot more acquainted with our high priest. And if you really believe this, if you really believe that you have a high priest, why would you not want to get more acquainted with him? I have a friend who was going through a very hard time not long ago, and a very close friend, and I kept trying to reach out to him, kept trying to reach out to him, kept shunning me, kept shunning me wanted to just live in the experience of agony and self-pity. No, I think too often that's what we're like with Jesus. We would rather live in the agony of self-pity than be acquainted with the one that says, I've done everything for you. I've been perfected for you. I am an everlasting priest for you. And you know what? I sympathize with your weaknesses. I mean, it almost... It almost takes me by surprise when I hear myself say that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, sympathizes with my weaknesses, and he's there for you, and he says, come to me. Let's acquaint ourselves with him. Let's acquaint ourselves with him more and more as we go through all of the failures and the struggles and the fighting and the trials of life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have not acquainted ourselves with you, such a marvelous high priest for us, such a complete high priest, one who entered into all of the experiences and temptations and and the sufferings that we have never even endured. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you went to the garden like a warrior, that you went to the battleground against Satan and sin and death, and that you went to drink the cup of your father's wrath, and we thank you that you have been perfected and that in the resurrection you were heard by your father. We pray, O God, that you would give us faith to come to him, who is our priest and our sacrifice. We pray that we would learn what it is to live day by day, clinging and depending on our priest. Lord Jesus, make yourself real, and present and powerful to our souls. Remove from us the hardness of our hearts and the blindness and the deceitfulness of sin, we pray. We ask these things in your name. Amen.